Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, a bi-weekly podcast from the American Psychological Association. I'm your host, Caitlin Luna. The topic for this episode is the mind-gut connection. Is your gut a second brain? Emerging research is showing that our brains and our gastrointestinal systems may be more connected than we previously thought, potentially holding profound influence over our moods, mental health, and sense of well-being. This exciting new frontier of scientific knowledge has captured a lot of people's attention, yet there's still so much we don't know. Our guests for this episode are Dr. Faith Dickerson, a psychologist who is the head of the Stanley Research Team at Shepherd Pret Health System, where she researches the role of infectious and immune factors in serious mental illness, and Dr. Emerin Mayer, a medical doctor who specializes in gastroenterology. He's one of the world's leading experts on brain-gut interactions in GI disorders. Both were featured in the cover story on this topic in the December 2018 issue of the Monitor on Psychology, APA's magazine for members that covers science, education, psychology practice, and more. Welcome, Dr. Dickerson and Dr. Mayer. Hello. Nice to be on the show. Let's start off with a basic question, Dr. Mayer. What is a gut microbiome and what does it do? So the term microbiome is... um, being used to refer both to the population and relative abundances of microbes that uh, live in our gut, um, as well as its function, basically related to the uh, genetic material and the um, the um, ability to generate metabolites and and substances that um, can influence various functions throughout the body. So the microbiome is both the relative abundance of organisms, as well as the function of the system. Um, microbiota, in, in contrast, is used only to refer to the, um, to the relative abundances. So what does that do for us in our, in our intestines? Well, it does a lot. Um, and, you know, we're, we're currently in a phase that people think it's involved in just about every um, normal, healthy function, and in a large growing number of diseases, uh, it basically, the, the, the most basic function, that's really why that symbiosis developed uh, a long time ago, millions of years ago, is that um, the, the microbes have the ability to break down components of food, mainly, mainly plant-based foods. Mm-hmm. We uh, fibers that we don't that we humans don't have the enzymes to break them down. Uh, this was even more important with our ancestors who were not able to to cook things and break down some of the fibers. Um, and they produce um, substances, the most well-known ones being the uh, short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. Uh, they then act with these with these substances or metabolites, they can talk to each other. They can talk to our gut. Um, and they also can talk to distant organs from the heart, the liver, and and the and the brain. So they, they have a lot of other functions. I mean, they, for example, they can metabolize uh, many medications. Mm-hmm. Um, they can met, they can metabolize um, sex hormones like estrogen and uh, probably progesterone and and testosterone. Um, they, they can. Um, they deal with with substances. So there's many substances that we now understand uh, are kind of targeted at the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Uh, large molecules. So, for example, um, so-called polyphenols. So the health benefit um, um, producing substances that are in in, in many plants, uh, including blueberries and uh, olives. Um, infants can break down large molecules called human milk oligosaccharides that cannot be absorbed by the baby from breast milk, but they go directly down to the microbes Mm -hmm. to metabolize them. So there's many, many substances that we uh, are learning, that we are learning now uh, that um, would, would, would this plays a role. This, you know, this, um, formerly it's kind of interesting to me always that, um, that, that people could write medical textbooks um, without taking this into consideration, mm-hmm. that, that, that any of our medicines or therapies really work without having taken this system into consideration. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot we don't know yet, correct, about about what the gut microbiome does and what it can, yeah, can this do. Is, this is what people forget. We're at the very beginning of this. You know, mm-hmm. we have extremely 
We have extremely powerful uh, ways to analyze them. So that's actually made this whole field possible. All the sequencing techniques, um, you know, which used to be extremely expensive, $100,000 uh, per uh, stool sample. Now you can do it for, for $20. Um, um, but I, I think people tend to forget this is a, a very complex ecosystem mm -hmm. with regional differences from the stomach all the way down to the colon. It's not the same. And what we pick up and we measure relative abundances and metabolites in the stool, I mean, that's a mixture of all of those regions. It's, it's kind of, if you, if you look at um, the world, like extrapolate this to the, to the world, um, it would be like homogenizing uh, information or mixing blood samples from, from every um, country on, on, on earth and trying to make sense from these, from these mixed results what what people do in these individual countries or what diseases they have. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of where we are right now. I would say optimistically even, I think we understand about 10% at best what that system can do, what it's capable to do, and what role it may play in, in various diseases. Mm -hmm. And I want to turn over to Dr. Dickerson, because you mentioned in that Monitor article that the idea of bacteria in your gut influencing your behavior and mental health would have seemed kooky only 10 years ago. And now there's a lot of public interest in this topic. So what do you think has changed? Right. I think a, a number of things have changed. At least at least, uh, at least, least three reasons uh, can account for this interest. One that uh, Dr. Mayer mentioned was that the, the techniques that we now have to measure the microbiome have really uh, become much more sophisticated and much more practical. Mm -hmm. The methods that are used, uh, people may not realize, are the same methods that are used to measure the human genome. And we know that these techniques have uh, rapidly uh, progressed over the last uh, couple of decades. Mm -hmm. So that we now measure the microbiome and the organisms that make up the microbiome with these same uh, methods. And the uh, technical uh, complexity is truly impressive and has enabled this research uh, to take place. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the second reason that the ideas seem less kooky uh, mm -hmm. for all of us uh, have to do with the very elegant animal experiments that have been done. And it's important to emphasize that most of what we understand about the microbiome has been carried out in animal studies, particularly with mice. Mm -hmm. And we can get into some discussion about how we translate those findings from animals uh, to humans. But to suffice it to say that uh, there are many uh, advantages, obviously, in working with animals, one of which is that one can work with germ-free animals animals which do not have these microbes. Mm -hmm. um, you can't, um, you know, really work with germ-free people, um, <sighs> but you can work with germ-free mice and that enables one to introduce these organisms and to study the effects of the organisms in a very systematic way. And obviously, Adam, um, animals can be sacrificed and one can uh, study the contents of their GI tract and the effect of the, uh, the microbiome on the brain in ways that would be uh, absolutely impossible uh, in humans. Right, right. But I, I think that the third reason is in, in some ways a little more distant, but also relevant to this discussion. I think the idea of the immune system and the gut-brain access uh, having a role in human behavior and in uh, psychological and psychiatric problems also has to be seen in the, context, in the context of the larger world of science and particularly of our understanding of genetics. Mm -hmm. Because it, it, it was really uh, felt uh, a number of years ago uh, by, by many of us that human genetics would really turn out to be more uh, easily explanatory uh, for the psychological and psychiatric problems uh, that people face. And I think that uh, that that area of research has been somewhat disappointing. And we don't really have clear answers yet uh, from human genetics about the etiology of complex psychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. And the genetic studies, uh, to my understanding, have not really led yet to effective treatments. So I think with 
the the course of that research, it has enabled uh, uh, scientists and the general public to be more open to other paradigms. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important uh, aspect of how this idea seems a little less kooky because we're now open to other other realms in terms of our understanding. Mm-hmm. And as we've said a few times, this is all in the early stages, but I wanted to talk about some of the intriguing findings that have emerged. Um, People with GI disorders have higher than average rates of bipolar disorders and depression. Uh, People with schizophrenia often have blood markers that suggest GI inflammation, and people on the autism spectrum have higher rates of GI problems than average population. So although we know this is in the early stages, what do those findings tell us? Well, I mean, I, I would I would make some comments and then turn it over to Dr. Mayer. I mean, I think these associations, they're very consistent and they're very intriguing. And I think they highlight that there uh, is an association uh, among the brain, the immune system and the gut. Um, but they don't tell us really uh, what what's the direction of that association and what is the causality. And again, we're uh, studying uh, these phenomena in animal models, and we can talk to the extent that uh, animal models of psychopathology have relevance uh, to, to human uh, disease. But I think they provide a very solid uh, foundation uh, uh, for this area of research. Yeah, I would comment on this um, with, uh, you know, I've always been a, a, a skeptic. I mean, that's why I'm a scientist. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I believe something one once really had the definitive um, proof for it. And and I, I totally agree with the, the problem that we have. It, it's, it's really twofold. One is that the most exciting uh, studies and results about the communication between the microbiome and the brain have come from from mouse studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, mouse behavior, obviously the mice can't talk. Uh, the mice don't have this highly complex brain that we have, particularly the prefrontal cortex. So it's like uh, it's like comparing a HP handheld calculator with um, the Watson IBM um, supercomputer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the and the second thing is the 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 mice um, so there's hundreds of different mouse strains. There's actually a panel with all these different mouse strains. You can do an experiment in one of these strains with the microbiota and brain, and you won't see an effect. And then you do it in a different strain, and you see the effect. So we don't know um, which one of these. So scientists pick the ones where they see the effect. We don't mm-hmm. really know if that relates to humans. Um and, and I think we have to differentiate. So the, the, the brain-gut interaction, and particularly the interaction of the brain with the gut-associated immune system is the biggest part of our immune system that sits in the gut. <clears throat> That's kind of a well-established entity and, and, and field of science. We know stress changes uh, the immune function. We know that uh, immune activation in the gut um, you know, can lead to... Um, uh, to, to to withdrawal behavior that's often been uh, uh, taken as, as as a depression-like behavior, um, and many studies have have looked at this. And actually, I would say there's some studies that prove causality from the brain to the gut and to the immune system, and vice versa. The problem with the microbiome, we don't have that yet in humans, uh, so it could easily be. Um, and I'm going to tell you a study that I think in some ways supports that. It could easily be that all these changes we see in gut microbial composition and function and metabolite production in patient in patient populations with different brain or psychiatric disorders are a consequence of the uh, output of the brain, of the disease brain, uh, to the gut, which we know changes a lot of functions, has effects on the uh, the, the, the environment that these microbes live in, but also directly on the microbes. Um, or if 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 there's really primary changes in the microbiome that either started in 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 infancy <clears throat> or are related to intake of medications, many of which modulate the microbiome um, and then generate signals that. They contribute to the to or cause the brain disease. <clears throat> so this um, and just give you one example. Um, 
there's there's many studies now in mice, monkeys, humans that psychological stress um, can change the relative abundance. For example, a decrease in lactobacilli, um, a change in tryptophan metabolism mm-hmm. that's related to this lactobacilli. Um, and, and we recently completed a study with Jeff Lackner um, at University of Buffalo that showed um, um, that the patients who underwent, these were patients with IBS that underwent cognitive behavioral therapy. We looked at the responders versus the non-responders. And the responders showed not only changes in the brain, uh, but also in the relative abundances of of microbes in, in the gut. So clearly, an improvement at the brain level uh, can have an effect on on gut microbial composition. So I think we have to be really careful on, until we have these these uh, longitudinal interventional studies um, before we can say there's really a causality in one direction versus the mm-hmm. other. Yeah, I wanted to talk about a, a recent study you were you inter- interviewed about in nature micro nature microbiology, and that was about the link between gut bacteria and depression. So in that study, it was of 2,100 adults, and it found that people with depression had different groups of gut bacteria than people without depression. So, what are your thoughts about that study as well? Yeah, so it's it's again it's it's a nice study because it's a large study. Um, it's um, it's it's how it's also you know has the same limitation because it's a um, it's it's an association that that's been shown. Um, there's there's a lot of variation that goes into a study like this. It's not like mice. If you study seven mice, seven germ-free mice, and uh, characterize abnormalities and metabolites, and then relate this to behavior, here you have a tremendous variability in in terms of genetics of the the, the participating subjects and um, their their dietary habits, the medications that they're on, comorbidities. Um, that that all could play a role here, and um, as I said, I mean, the the, the gut brain interaction is very sensitive to a lot of factors. Um, stress is one that we understand quite well, so it's it's limited by that. I mean, the association that they found with with certain uh, taxa um, and depression and and quality of life is is interesting. Um, it it does not, you know proof causality in, right. in, in any way. Uh, and it's, um, it, there's some similarities with, so there's a few of these depression studies in, in patients with major depressive disorder. Uh, the, the findings that they have are not necessarily all consistent. There's some, this fecalibacterium shows up in, in several, in most of them actually, that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and I think it's definitely something that should be followed up in, in, in mouse studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would look at this really with um, still with, with a significant um, skepticism that mm-hmm. it, 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 it proves a causal relationship. Yeah, so I think I'm, you know, what I'm really, as we've touched on a bunch of times, is that there's all this intriguing research, but before we get carried away, there needs to be more research and more work done in this, in this space. Um, and Dr. Dickerson, I know you've been doing a lot of research with people with bipolar disorder. So can you talk about what you found in your work? Yes. Uh, our studies are uh, different and, and present a different uh, look and a different way of investigating this topic. The study that uh, was most recently published last uh, fall in the journal Bipolar Disorders was not of the microbiome directly, but was a clinical trial of probiotics. And probiotics mm-hmm. have become very popular. They're widely uh, used and uh, and uh, advertised as having uh, health benefits, uh, which uh, they may have. And probiotics are microorganisms that are introduced into the body for beneficial uh, qualities. Mm-hmm. So they're uh, compounds that contain actually uh, live uh, organisms that are thought to uh, uh, have a health benefit. So in all of this research, our ultimate goal obviously is to improve the symptoms and the lives of uh, people, and in my case, uh, patients who have psychiatric uh, disorders. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we did, again, based on our uh, uh, 
concept of the gut-brain access is we studied individuals who had been hospitalized for mania. Mm-hmm. And mania is a very acute psychiatric condition. Most people are uh, probably familiar with the idea of it. Patients are very activated, unusually so, with uh, rapid speech and, and, and flight of ideas and behavioral activation. And this uh, syndrome, this condition can be very disruptive and can lead people in a psychiatric hospital mm-hmm. where they can get treatment. So uh, what we did, it was based on uh, a previous uh, study that we'd done that hadn't been a clinical trial, but just observing patients, is that we uh, enrolled people who were hospitalized for mania when they were acutely uh, psychiatrically ill. And after they were discharged and they were uh, more stable, shortly after discharge, we enrolled them in a trial where they were randomized to receive either a probiotic compound as a supplement or uh, something that looked like the probiotic but was not the probiotic. So this is a standard design of a randomized control trial. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we had based on our previous uh, work was that uh, – the uh, probiotics uh, would uh, reduce uh, in, uh, intestinal uh, inflammation and uh, would help with their clinical course. The study that this was based on uh, showed that uh, patients admitted to the hospital for mania had elevations in uh, inflammation and that the level of the inflammation was was uh, predictive of whether or not they were readmitted uh, in a six-month follow-up period. So we thought that one way maybe to reduce inflammation and to to help with this outcome would be to administer probiotics. Mm -hmm. So probiotics are pretty acceptable to patients. It wasn't uh, that hard to recruit people for the study because we know they're generally safe. Mm -hmm. So what we found was that uh, in this trial that took a number of years to do, as you can imagine, to recruit the patients and to follow them for the six-month period after hospital discharge, we found that those who were receiving the probiotics, that we only found out later when we broke the blind, so to speak, that the ones who were receiving the probiotics were significantly less likely to have a relapse, to have an exacerbation of psychiatric symptoms in uh, the study period, the Mm six-month study period. So this was a, a proof of concept, as it as it will uh, be considered, um, of the role of inflammation and reducing inflammation, again, through the use of a probiotic compound uh, to improve uh, uh, psychiatric outcomes. Yeah, it's all very fascinating. And, and yeah, of course, could, you – yeah, go on. I mean, if I could make a comment, I mean, this is definitely one of these examples of a, of a, a very important study done in humans when – sort of going towards a, a mechanism rather than just an association. And um, I, I think it sort of um, goes along with, you know, with our earlier study uh, on, on this topic of probiotics and, and brain um, f- function or activity, where we showed that the regular intake of a probiotic in, in healthy young women um, changed the, um, the, the connectivity of um, a whole network within the brain that was activated by an emotion recognition task. So we we've not followed this up in a in a psychiatric population, but it certainly for us was a proof of concept that that the signaling from the gut to the brain induced by um, by by a a probiotic uh, actually does happen as it happens in in, in mice. So I, I think this. Mania study by Dr. Dickerson uh, is, is, is really – that's the kind of studies I think that we need to, mm-hmm. to move this field forward. I think it's really an iterative process, understanding how some of these processes may work in, in animals, then human observational studies, testing them out in clinical trials where, again, we aim to uh, uh, minimize any potential harm that patients would be exposed to, and then to circle back again uh, to, to other uh, research realms. Um, in this study, you might say, well, this is one study, it's one hospital, you know, you had a pretty good sample size, but again, you'd really need to to uh, uh, 
to to replicate it to to do the study again and in mm-hmm. fact this particular trial is being replicated at the University of Texas where they are, are recruiting now for a similar study and in the University of Texas study unlike ours they're actually uh, getting measures of the gut microbiome we had measures of the oral microbiome which is uh, kind of a, another chapter but mm-hmm. i think that we need to to uh, continue these studies with slightly different populations. We're also performing a trial now, also funded by the Stanley Medical Research Institute, in which we are uh, performing a a very similar study. This time, instead of starting with patients who are acutely manic, we are starting with patients who were admitted to the hospital for bipolar depression. Mm -hmm. Because um, for people who have bipolar disorder, in fact, the uh, depressive aspect of the illness is often the most disabling and uh, does also result in hospital admission. So we're doing a similar trial, uh, but starting with people who are acutely uh, depressed in the context of their bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, you know, just uh, recruiting now and enrolling people, and they're taking their study medicine. We don't know which they're taking, and that's the uh, kind of the excitement and the mystery of a clinical trial is really not knowing how it's going to uh, turn out uh, as the study is underway. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Mayer, I want to turn to you um, to talk about a book you wrote called The Mind-Gut Connection. And in the book, you describe the gut as having capabilities to surpass all other organs and even rival the brain, and that it stores 95% of all serotonin in our bodies, that hormone and neurotransmitter that regulates mood. Because our guts have direct connections to our brain through nerves, what happens when our brains and our guts are not in sync? Yeah, so this um, this statement, it's it's not related that I'm a gastroenterologist, but mm-hmm. it's partly related to the fact that I've studied these brain-gut interactions for the better part of my career for mm-hmm. the last 40 years. And um, what, what has become, during that time, what has become known is, as you just said, I mean, it's, it's the biggest endocrine organ uh, in our body. It's the biggest immune. It's the biggest portion of our immune system. Um, it is the main storage site for, for serotonin. It has its own so-called enteric nervous system, which um, you know, has, has been called the second brain, even though it's really the first brain. So one of the questions is, why, why is that? And um, well, the reason is during evolution, this, um, this gut brain or gut nervous system axis was really the, really the first system of, of regulation and then the microbes, the algae came into this, uh, what was originally just a floating uh, digestive tube with a nerve net around it. And so this, this interaction between the microbiota, some type of microbiota, um, this very complex system in the gut with all these modules, um, and, and, and the brain is, is one of the most ancient um, biological systems in in our body and has been maintained in virtually every life form from you know fruit flies to cockroaches to um, large animals to whales uh, it's it's almost ubiquitous so you almost can say this is part of evolution and the uh, this this close connection uh, which, which has really been neglected for a long time. I mean, it's it's really amazing to me. It took the microbes to stimulate the interest of people in the brain-gut communication, because um, you know people have been studying this for for a long time, and there's uh, there's a lot of evidence um, that for this bidirectional communication in um, the brain regulating any of these other systems in in the in the gut, um, and the gut sending signals. Um, by multiple communication channels to the to the brain, so I would almost say this is like uh, the main axis homeostatic, uh, the, the main homeostatic system within our bodies that has been around for the longest time, and we're now just recognizing um, its its importance in in health and in disease. Mm-hmm. And I understand that stress can have a huge impact on a person's digestive health. So. How is our gut different when we're stressed and when we're relaxed? Well, you can almost say the the you know the, and a term that I used in my in 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 my book, the gut is sort of the um, 
the other side of the coin of an emotion, mm-hmm. um, any any emotion, uh, be it related to stress or not stress, will be reflected um, in changes in multiple gut functions, ranging from the simple thing, the contractions in different parts of the GI tract, the the regional transit times, secretion of mucus, fluids, um, immune activation. Um, when you stress, all of these functions are altered. When when you stress acutely, it uh, it's a, it's an adaptive response. Mm-hmm. It goes up, and then it settles back to its normal level. In in chronic stress, it's different. It becomes maladaptive. Um, so many functions become not not just maladaptive for our own health, but also for the to the microbes that live in it. And as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> so no. Nephrine has been particularly well studied on this. Um, you know, the main one of the main stress mediators released by uh, post uh, postganglionic sympathetic nerves in the in the gut. It it also goes up the concentration of norepinephrine in the gut lumen. There's certain microbes that um, actually metabolize uh, the form of norepinephrine that's released in inside the gut and make it more active. Um, and it's been shown that this norepinephrine in the gut can modulate the behavior and the gene expression of a large number of, of microbes. First, it was shown for, for pathogens. It makes pathogens more aggressive and more uh, virulent. Um, but it now also has shown for symbionts, so for the good guys in our gut, it changes their behavior. So you could almost say if you're, if you're chronically stressed, your gut is completely different. Um, in all its function, um, and it will, and the alteration in the microbes will produce substances um, that get into your bloodstream, um, and obviously some of them will reach reach the uh, brain. Stress also um, increases the permeability of the gut. Um, it's been referred to in uh, in in the, in the lay media as the leaky gut. Yeah. Um, so the leaky gut doesn't just happen in response to unhealthy food item like fat and sugar, um, but also um, in really well studied in response to uh, acute severe stress and, and chronic stress. With that mechanism, you get immune uh, molecules into the circulation. Um, so you can say, you know, when you stress, don't just worry about your heart and your blood pressure um, and the way it feels unpleasant. But you're doing something fundamental to one of the main regulatory systems in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's been reported that um, that hunter-gatherer tribes have more vibrant, diverse gut microbiomes. H- how does that compare with the average American's gut health? I mean, can they be compared, and what can we take away from the, that? Yeah, so there was a pivotal study um, which, which was done a couple of years ago where they compared. Uh, they took one of these hunter-gatherer uh, tribes on the Orinoco River, the Yanomami uh, Indians, and looked at their um, relative abundances and richness, diversity um, of their of their gut microbiome, and compared those to. They did this study both in adults and in infants, and they compared it to a population uh in in north american cities both again adults and infants the remarkable thing was that there was a i think it was about a 40 percent decrease in the um in the richness and diversity of the gut microbiome in um people living in north america mm-hmm. and that was even more uh, intriguing that this was not only seen in the adults but also in the infants so really? it's not something that that you lose these bacteria um, as you as you grow up and have an unhealthy diet, it's you you start out we we start out with that uh, compromised diversity. Mm. So we've we've lost many of these organisms very early on, um, and uh, during a period, it's always said that the first thousand days of life are so the most important for mm-hmm. the the maturing of the gut microbiome and its interactions with the immune system. So we start out very early on in life, um, and it's probably plays a role the transmission from the mother to the infant to the newborn um, with a compromised uh, my, a microbial um, ecosystem, which which has obviously 
you know, major implications because um, people like um, um, Marty Blazer in his book Missing Microbe has shown this pretty dramatically. This decline in the diversity and relative abundance of certain organisms has been going on for the last um, hundred years or so, and is continuing. Mm-hmm. So, what when you look at any other ecosystem? If you diminish the complexity and diversity of an ecosystem, it will lose its resilience uh, and resistance against perturbations and uh, diseases. So this is something I think we really have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that have anything to do with it being in a world that's too clean? I think that's part of it. Um, There's probably many factors. Um, It's... It's obviously dietary. I mean, mm-hmm. these Yanomami Indians have obviously a very different diet. Uh, it is, even though they live in the middle of the jungle, surrounded by all these wild animals, it's a, a predominantly plant-based diet with multiple different types of, of plants that they consume. And um, it's, um, it's, it's medications. Um, antibiotic mm-hmm. consumption in mm-hmm. infants and, and in pregnant mothers is extremely high in the West, and um, there's other medications as well. Uh, so there's there's multiple factors. The, um, the hygiene hypothesis, so that's, you know, the excessive cleanliness and hygiene that, um, that, that, that we have in the Western world. And it's pretty obvious if you travel to, to one of these places in the developing world, how, how dramatic the difference is, just mm-hmm. in food preparation mm-hmm. or... And um, that's been implicated um, in a compromised training of the system early on in life during those first thousand days. So mm-hmm. that, that, that our immune system does not see um, um, potential mild pathogens and does not really learn to differentiate between, um, between uh, self and non-self. And the increase, the, the, the increase in allergies and hypersensitivities um, and autoimmune diseases has been, it's been proposed that this hygiene hypothesis Mm -hmm. is really the explanation for it. Yeah. And I want to get both of your thoughts on companies that are offering to map your gut flora. So um, Dr. Dickerson, do you want to start off with that one? Right. I think that while that's an intriguing idea, it seems somewhat uh, premature. I don't think Uh, The results would be easily interpretable. We don't really have standards uh, by which to uh, judge uh, these results. It seems like, quite honestly, it might be a little bit of a waste of money. (laughs) Um, Maybe benign, unless people were were told something about their health that was uh, alarming or actionable in a way that uh, would be – uh, damaging to them, but I think I think at this point it's really premature. Although um, you know, one one can see that it would be uh, kind of intriguing to do it. You know, given that we're all kind of learning more about this microbiome and kind of intrigued and have no way to measure it ourselves. You know, it's not like we can right. uh, look inside our gut and figuring it out. <laughs> so I think it's intriguing, but but uh, premature at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah, um, my comment on this is, and I have to disclose that I, I am on the advisory boards of several of such companies, mm-hmm. um, the leading companies in this area, and um, I still have a certain degree of skepticism as well as um, enthusiasm mm-hmm. for something like that becoming uh, really the a routine test that mm-hmm. instead of getting a, a blood test where you look at, you know, 10, uh, 10 substances in your blood, 10 measures, um, and then make predictions about your health. I think this has the potential to go much further than that. Um, and clearly, you know, in combination with genetic testing. So we're, we're definitely moving into a future with, with these technologies that are now available in the supercomputers that can make sense out of the data um, will pretty fundamentally change um, Medicine, diagnostics, um, health assessment, risk assessment, um, and but it's still we're still in the middle of this process. You know, there's there's one company actually not involved with it um, that postulates in their in their advertising that um, you can if you have type two diabetes metabolic syndrome that you can. Um, 
tailor your specific diet that's that's good for you and that does not worsen the syndrome, that you can base this on on an assessment of the gut microbiome. Um, that you know that needs to, it's it's based on a lot of high quality research papers in both animal and humans, um, but it needs to be determined or needs to be seen in the next few years which one of these uh, approaches turns out to be good enough. So they're, they're, they're going to be uh, adopted by insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that I, if you ask me what the likelihood is that this is going to happen, is going to happen. I, I think it, I would say it's probably too close to 70% or so mm-hmm. right now, the way it says this, but we're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's an example where the, Technology at this point is ahead of our complete understanding and the interpretability of the data. Mm-hmm. But I think the technology is there, and once there's more knowledge, uh, potentially these methods uh, would be informative. But I, I think now it would, um, you know, if one did it more out of curiosity and not, not, uh, not in not putting much uh, faith, so to speak, in the results, I think it, it would be interesting, but not really as a as a diagnostic or therapeutic tool. Mm-hmm. And can people do anything to improve their gut health? Well, that's always an interesting question. I mean, we, we know from studies, some of which been have uh, uh, mentioned uh, in this podcast, that that uh, diabetes uh, is is associated uh, with uh, aspects of the microbiome and obesity. We haven't mentioned antibiotics yet, actually. Mm-hmm. Antibiotics have a, a major effect on the microbiome. Um, that I can tell you a study we've done about antibiotics in patients with mania. But based on uh, what we know so far, I think we can assume that uh, if patients have a healthy weight and if they have diabetes, if their diabetes is in control, and if they avoid unnecessary antibiotics, that that's likely to improve uh, their uh, Mm microbiome. Again, we don't know quite in what direction uh, the microbiome affects these uh, conditions and vice versa, but we do know that there are some uh, ways that people can, uh, in general, improve their gut health. Yeah, I would say also this question about gut health. So people always want to know this, what can I do for my gut microbial health and my gut health? So we always assume that the two of them uh, are interrelated, but mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of probably the, the best thing that you can do is you stay away from unnecessary intake of medications and mm-hmm. particularly antibiotics. And I do want to emphasize unnecessary because obviously antibiotics are life saving in right, many absolutely. conditions. And um, and to be on a healthy diet, I think we know from even long before the the microbiome science coming on the horizon that a, a largely plant-based diet um, has the greatest benefit on cardiovascular, um, brain function, meta- metabolic um, d- diseases. So part of that beneficial effect of the diet, for example, is mediated by the microbes, mm-hmm. but not all of it. You know, we know that um, so many effects on, on metabolic health are not mediated through the through the microbial metabolites that are generated from a plant-based diet. What the what the ratio is between a, a direct effect, for example, of health promoting food on our gut, um, like all the things that are being absorbed in the small intestine and not metabolized by uh, microbes, as opposed to what role the, the the microbial generated products byproducts from from our diet is, I think that needs to be determined, but it, it's, it's two ways I think that you can affect gut health, diet directly and diet through um, the intermediary of, um, of, of microbes. Yeah, what about foods like yogurt, you know, kimchi, kombucha, sauerkraut, they get a lot of attention for being good for us because they're fermented foods. Do those have any impact on your gut health, digestive system? Well, one, one thing to say at the outset is the many products that are uh, promoted and sold 
for many of them, we really don't know uh, if they uh, contain the active organisms that they claim or the concentration of the organisms. And mm-hmm. that is a major issue because m- most of these products are not really regulated by the FDA. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know. I would say that if these organisms are present and present in a sufficient quantity, that they uh, may be beneficial. Yeah, I would say uh, I I would agree with this. I, I think the um, uh, I would probably say that ninety percent of the commercially available um, uh, products, um, su- supplements, and you know various pro and prebiotics are not based are not evidence based. Um, for example, confirmed by a uh, by the gold standard, a, a randomized clinical controlled uh, uh, trial. Um, so. It, it, you would never be allowed to sell a medication with this limited amount of evidence. Um, and I'm sure that a big portion of the benefits that people derive from from taking different types of probiotics and prebiotics, you could consider a, a placebo response. So it's nothing bad. It's actually a placebo response is always good. Um, but the, the actual health benefit... Um, I mean, my my recommendation to patients is uh, start out with um, naturally um, fermented products, as you said, the kimchi and the yogurt, and the rather than taking pills with mm-hmm. with probiotics, um, and ingest your prebiotics with a um, high variety of plant based foods, which are all full of prebiotics instead of taking. Again, taking pills with prebiotics, with a single prebiotic, um, that if, if those things are not available for some reason or another, um, if you're in the North Pole and you, you may benefit from, from taking mm-hmm. you know, some of these substances in, 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 in pill form. And um, Dr. Dickerson, in that monitor piece, you talked about psychobiotics. Can you explain what those are? Right. Psychobiotics are uh, organisms uh, that when ingested in adequate amounts, uh, live organisms when ingested in adequate amounts, uh, produce uh, mental health benefits. So again, uh, we haven't established absolutely that the ingestion of live organisms does produce mental health benefits, but in theory, uh, something like a probiotic compound, if it were to be uh, determined uh, and established in evidence-based trials, that it was helpful, that would be an example of a psychobiotic. Mm -hmm. Kind of an interesting combination of a term here. Mm -hmm. And so I want to get both of your your takes on this. So what is needed to continue research in this field? Is it more funding, more grants? What do you both think? I'll start with you, Dr. Dickerson. Well, certainly we can always use more funding. And uh, a new area of research uh, like the one we're discussing it, it, it falls uh, among and between our, our usual uh, uh, research silos. So here we have a gastroenterologist participating in this podcast. I'm a psychologist. Uh, it falls uh, to some extent in complementary and alternative medicine because these are not established medications uh, per se. So there's always the question of uh, funding of, of who is really uh, taking the lead in this area. And as often happens, there are a number of different uh, research, uh, traditional research silos, uh, which are moving ahead. So again, definitely uh, grant funding. I also think there are regulatory issues. It hasn't been absolutely and fully established what is the role of the FDA, how much oversight uh, uh, they uh, need and uh, do have. These are uh, new kinds of uh, compounds to be tested that don't fall in in the categories of traditional uh, medications. Uh, Prebiotics were mentioned uh, a while ago. Those are not live uh, uh, microorganisms, but uh, do uh, serve to promote uh, the growth of healthy organisms in the GI tract. So the regulation of prebiotics, the regulation of probiotics, these uh, regulatory issues for human uh, subject trials, I think, also uh, need to be uh, better uh, clarified. And there are some barriers here into performing uh, this uh, research with clinical patients. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Dr. Amir? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with this. Um, I, I think, you know, just make one comment on the on the, the 
the kind of research that's needed. I think that's a that's a very important, and this is already happening to a certain degree. Um, so for the human studies, and I, I personally believe that it's the, the best approach to do something in humans first to really characterize that it plays a role and then go back to the animal model and look at the mechanism. I, I think that's somehow more rewarding than starting with um, relatively artificial animal models and then only a very small fraction are translatable into in, into human populations. A good, a good example, um, intractable seizures, where we, have, for example, have known that, um, that, a, that a ketogenic diet is beneficial, is therapeutic. Um, and then a study came from uh, an investigator at, at, at UCLA, Elaine Chow, uh, that, that showed that this ketogenic diet changes the microbes to produce metabolites that are responsible for a change in the seizure threshold. So this is like this reverse translation. I think that's one. The other one, in human studies, we need large numbers because you um, you have a lot of variables now that you can measure from the, uh, the, the microbial abundance, the metabolites, the genetics of the, the host, um, and then various other parameters, clinical parameters. You need very large data sets to do that. Uh, and uh, so it, it will require um, consortia, um, most likely international consortia that can generate 10,000 um, uh, subjects, data from 10 subjects. Um, and um, that's probably one of these, these two approaches that you go to do the reverse translation and you go to very large data sets to, and then use, you know, artificial intelligence to extract patterns um, and um, identify predictors. To me, that's really the, the, the most promising approach. And the NIH, for example, has taken that, uh, that, that approach. Um, so we're involved in a, in a study, in a, a cooperative study on cognitive decline, um, where this is exactly being done with a consortium of U.S. and European investigators mm -hmm. collecting data on, 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 on patients. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dickerson and Dr. Mayer. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much. And if you'd like to read the Monitor story on the MindGut Connection, visit APA's website at apa.org slash monitor. If you've been a longtime listener or are new to our podcast, please consider giving us a rating in iTunes. And if you have time, write a review. We'd really appreciate it. Also, we'd like to hear from you directly. So if you have any questions, comments, or ideas to share, please email me at kluna at apa.org. That's K-L-U-N-A at apa.org. Speaking of psychology is part of the APA podcast network, which includes other great podcasts like APA Journal's Dialogue about new psychological research and progress notes about the practice of psychology. You can find all our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit our website, speakingofpsychology.org, to listen to more episodes. I'm Caitlin Luna with the American Psychological Association.